Well, I'm going to have a picture come up on the screen. And this is Katie and I when we got married. Now, at the time when Katie and I met, uh, I was a junior. She was a sophomore in college. Uh, I'm in that picture 22 years old. She's 20 years old. Uh, I look at that picture and think, boy, we were just kids back then. And, and often when you get into marriage, when you come to the altar, you come to it, no matter how old you were at the time, with all of the optimism of youth. I mean, after all, think about marriage, right? You're standing in an altar before God saying, I do until death do us part. If you went into that engagement, you know, pessimistically thinking this is going to crash and burn pretty hard, you wouldn't be saying I do. You would be saying, no, thank you. But we came to the altar and we thought life is going to work out. You know, there's a lot of people out there that fight, but we're not going to fight like that. We told ourselves that our love was just so powerful and magnetic that we are going to love one another in a way that no one else has ever loved one another. It was about five days after we said I do that we had our first blow up. I know some of you say you've never fought before, and I somewhat don't believe you because Katie and I, we've fought. <laughs> we've gone to bed mad. Uh, we have not spoken to one another for a day or two, sometimes maybe even longer. There's been times where you look across the table at one another and you think, you're kind of a stranger to me. I, I didn't know that you were like this. You see, life has this way of taking our optimism and running it up against the wall of reality. And this can be stressful on your marriage. And I think it can be stressful on your faith with Jesus, I mean, what do you do when hard things happen? I know we said I do and I always will, but many of us, when we went to the altar, we had our optimistic blinders on. And we went to the altar thinking, you know, the hard things out there, those things, they don't really happen to people like us. Our love stories different than other love stories. And we may even brought these same blinders into our relationship with Jesus. But that perspective is not biblical because according to the biblical worldview and according to the reality that we all experience, life is open-ended. We don't always get that happy ending. Uh, not every bow gets tied up neatly. So what do married couples do when things get hard? For example, what do you do if your spouse says really mean things to you and it doesn't seem like they're going to change? Or what about those situations that never seem like they're going to resolve? Your spouse walks out one day. They say, I've met someone else. You go through the process of divorce, and that process gets really ugly. Or say you're married for 10 years. You've tried everything you can do to be kind to your in-laws, and despite all of that, they still just don't like you. Or what about the things that happen to your marriage? Like a spouse who's been stressed at work, they've heard that the company's downsizing, 
they've been giving it their best, putting in 50, 60, 70 hour weeks, and they still get that call in the office where they say, start exploring your options. Or say, for example, you have a teenager who fell into the wrong crowd. And after some time, some months past, you come to the realization that that teenager has now developed a dependency on drugs. You see, it turns out that life is unpredictable, and this makes us feel vulnerable, and the unpredictability of life can be a great source of risk to your marriage. We all know of examples of good marriages that crashed and burned because of suffering. So if we're going to make this marriage thing work, if we're going to endure for the long haul, then you have to go into marriage with your eyes wide open. You need to develop a biblical worldview of living in a fallen world. Now, I think many of us, when we went to the wedding altar, we came to that altar with a Genesis chapter 2 worldview. We said to ourselves, this whole marriage thing is going to be like the Garden of Eden. Sure, we're going to have our ups and downs, but broadly speaking, things are just going to work out for us. I mean, we're going to have children who are born with 10 fingers and 10 toes, We're going to be able to pursue our career ambitions and achieve those career ambitions so that we can get that nice average American home with the the white picket fence. But then the earth spins a few times. Maybe some decades pass and you start just really getting that your naive notions were just that. They were naive, that that was not what was intended for your life, it turns out that every marriage will face stress. Every marriage will have hard times. Every marriage will have a cross to bear. Now, if anyone learned this about life, it's King Solomon. Here you have an individual in the Bible who is presented with every good option that you can possibly have. His life is about the fast track. It tells us in the scriptures that God blesses Solomon, get this, with wisdom, prosperity, security, and longevity. Talk about all the things that we want out of life. And with these gifts from God, he's able to leverage those gifts to bring about the biggest building program that Israel has ever experienced and economic prosperity to the degree that Israel, in the state of Israel, is like a common material People just kind of turn their nose up to it. They want gold and richer things. He has changed the reputation of Israel to such a degree that the queen of Sheba travels great distances to see what this place is all about. Now, you think an individual like that, if he was asked to write a book on the New York Times bestselling list, would be writing a book that tells us how to win at life. Now, these are all the tips and techniques, and if you just do things the same way I did, then you will be successful. But his New York Times best-selling book came to this conclusion. Life is dissatisfying. It's dissatisfying. It doesn't deliver as it should. Here I am, I'm Solomon. I have had everything that the world has to offer. I've experienced it all And it was dissatisfying. He says this in Ecclesiastes 2 through 3. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, 
all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now that word vanity is the Hebrew word hevel. And that word paints a picture about life that life will be disorienting. It will be dissatisfying. In fact, the word really describes the futility of life, the enigmatic nature of life, and also the fleeting nature of life. Have you ever found yourself looking at life and thinking, it's really, really short and it's really confusing. I wasn't expecting my life to turn out like this. Well, that's that word, hevel. And if you live with the false worldview that your life is going to be predictable, or if you go into your marriage saying, my spouse is going to be predictable, even if your spouse is a Christian, you will find yourself saying the same thing, hevel. Because life can be baffling. And let's just be honest. You didn't sign up for that. None of us signed up for that. We didn't come to the altar thinking that there was actually going to be hardship and unresolved pain. None of us, when we said, I'm going to trust Jesus and follow him, none of us came into that expecting suffering. No, we believed that if we just did his, uh, things his way, that everything would work out. We believed that any confusion we experienced in life would be met with closure. But I have to tell you this morning, those were misguided expectations. They were naive. They weren't biblical. You see, when you live this life with misguided expectations, you feel bitter and disappointed with this life. Let me give you a couple of clues that maybe you've been living with misguided expectations. The first clue is that you're looking for peace outside of faith. And think about some of those situations we talked about and some additional ones. Situations where you're desperately looking for peace. Maybe it's that relationship with the in-laws and you would love to see closure around that. You would love to see the two sides come together and work things out, but it just doesn't happen. Or suppose something happened in your childhood to you. And you would love to have a conversation with one of your parents about that, but they've passed away. Or say, for example, you, you are living with a spouse and the spouse gets really angry and they stop talking to you for a few days. And now you're living in a home where there's this big 600-pound hairy gorilla right in the center of the relationship. And instead of like looking at the gorilla and say, hey, there's a gorilla right there, the spouse decides to just keep living as if nothing is happening. In all these situations, there's a common thread. There's no closure, no resolution, no apologies, no forgiveness, not even a, you know, let's kind of let bygones be bygones. So how do you find peace in the midst of a world like that? I didn't know this about A.W. Tozer. I just read this story recently. It turns out that the theological giant totally neglected his wife Ada and his family 
in some pretty stunning ways. As you read a biography about his life, you come to the realization that he would spend much time on the road, he would leave his family alone, he would neglect the material needs of his family, so much so that the day that he died, he left his wife Ada penniless. Now, later on, after his death, Ada remarried a man named Leonard Odom, and she was asked to describe her life with her new husband. And she said this, I'm happier than I've ever been. Aiden, that's Tozer, he loved Jesus, but Leonard, he loves me. So she never resolved the disconnect between the spiritual giant and the man who neglected the family completely. Harvey says this, he says, we feel we will be made whole through interpretation apologies, restoration, nostalgia, or the return to a flourishing past. But what's often happening is that we are losing our appetite for trusting God. By looking for something from others, we subtly marginalize God. And after all, when you were coming up to the altar, it wasn't like you were given this label on your marriage that said, if you never get closure, feel free to return this for a full refund. God's faithfulness doesn't work like that, and sometimes our desperation for closure can actually become a spiritual snare to us. I think about the faith heroes that are described in Hebrews chapter 11. You have men like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Moses and other faith heroes, people that we look at their stories sometimes and we place them up on these pedestals and we think that everything worked out for these individuals. But if you go to Hebrews eleven thirteen, it makes this pronouncement about the faith heroes. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. You see what happens there? There's no closure. So the Bible is trying to tell us something really important. Let this sink in. Closure is overrated. It's overrated. God never promises it. We don't find peace by supposedly getting answers to the ultimate questions. We find peace by clinging to a good God who has made promises that are far grander than what we get right here and right now. And it turns out that sometimes that involves trusting God with a spouse who isn't going to change. Can I just let you in on a little secret? Every spouse needs to change. Did you come to that realization yet? None of us are completely that image of Jesus that God intends us to become fully and finally. We're all in the process of change, and sometimes we come to the place of unbelief where we think, unless something changes in them, then I'm never going to be satisfied, but that's just not true to the life of faith. Kim Range actually passed along a book to me. It was, uh, the title of the book was Gospel shaped marriages. And I went to the back of the book and there was appendix with this title, How to Change Your Spouse in Three Easy Steps. 
Now I'm just like, I want to know the answer to that question. So I get back to the appendix and it says this on the appendix. This appendix contains everything we know about changing your spouse. And then it's completely blank. And I said, that's about right. That's how I feel about changing people. I can't change one person. If I had that ability, I'd have like the fastest growing church in North America. People would be changing right and left. But I just haven't been successful like that. Why? Because no one can change another human heart. That's God's job. Which means... I've got to learn how to trust God with the change that I need in myself. I've got to learn how to trust God with the change that needs to happen in others. I need to trust God for his timetable, his timing. I think of the Apostle Paul who learned this in the last hours of his life. As he's writing his last letter, he kind of bitterly expresses the reality that all of these men that he's poured his life into for decades have abandoned him. They've left him in prison. He's sitting there waiting for his execution. He's all alone. And after writing about all of this hurt, he comes to this conclusion in 2 Timothy. He says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's consider another clue. The second clue is in the absence of closure, I've become a cynic. Now, I've been in New England now for 12 years, so I don't necessarily feel like an outsider anymore, but I will say this, I did move into the area, and I believe that the attitude that may be holding this area back from spiritual revival is cynicism. I mean, people wear the cynical attitude here like a badge of honor. It's almost like a a mark of moral virtue to be incredibly cynical. There are people that just have this incredible ability to see through the appearance of good and unmask the bad behind it. You see, a cynical person will see the worst possibility, whether it's there or not. And I've actually left conversations thinking to myself, I don't even know how they got there in their mind. Like that was incredibly creative and negative altogether. How did you do that? And that attitude has no place in the life of a Christian. See, cynicism is not discernment. It's actually unbelief and bitterness with life disguising itself as discernment. You won't find it in the book of Proverbs. You won't find it in the scriptures because cynicism breeds contempt. And contempt will cause you to start thinking of the people in your sphere, your relationships, as beneath your consideration, deserving of your scorn. And in the marriage context, it will destroy your marriage. It will be like scorched earth. I read a study, and this study was actually conducted by unbelievers. 
And they noted that the number one attitude resulting in divorce was contempt, not anger. Anger can be destructive in a marriage, but anger at least means that the person cares about the relationship. You get mad about things you care about. Now, contempt is totally different. Contempt means I've given up. I'm done. I don't care what you think. You're beneath me. You're not worth my consideration. And contempt will cause you to stop dead in your tracks spiritually. You won't grow anymore. I've actually sit in counseling situations with people who are talking about the divorce that happened 20 and 25 years ago as if it happened yesterday. And guess what? They're more mad today than they were then about the situation. They haven't gone anywhere in life. They haven't grown. So how do you combat that attitude? Scripturally thinking, speaking, I suggest you combat it this way. You develop an optimistic faith outlook. And the way you develop that outlook is you start living with gratitude in your life. You start looking out and seeing the things that God is doing in your world, the way that he's provided for you. In James chapter 1, it says, every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. So when you recognize those good gifts, you speak about those good gifts, you thank him for those good gifts, it completely changes how you think. Clue number three, things will never go wrong if I just get it right. And here's the Christian version of that. If I just apply God's word correctly and just do those things right, then things will always go right for me. I've watched Christians, I've been in the counseling office with a mother, for example, comes in tearful, brokenhearted. She says, I've read all the books. I read Focus in the Family, Dr. Dobson. I applied all the tricks and techniques. I prayed for my child. I brought my child to church. I believed Proverbs 22.6, and he's completely rebelling. He wants nothing to do with the Lord. Now, Proverbs 22.6 says this, right? It says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I've actually heard it taught from from the pulpit that that's a promise. That if you just do everything right, then that child is going to grow up and that child is going to love Jesus. Now, what that ends up doing to the people that don't experience that blessing, to that promise, is it makes them feel like an outsider in the faith because they think, I did that. I poured myself into that. Something must be wrong with me. Harvey calls that gospel determinism. This mindset suggests that by doing things right, that I actually then have the ability to determine outcomes for myself and for other people. That mindset is not biblical. So what is Proverbs 22.6 describing then? It's not talking about outcomes, right? It's saying this, that good leadership in the home, godliness, praying for your kids, bringing your kids to church regularly, letting them develop in an environment that is safe and grace-filled, those things don't determine outcomes, but those things can greatly influence your children. You see, it turns out that good 
parenting results in positive influence and bad parenting results in negative influence in a child's life. So as you look at the statistics of children who hold on to faith, cling to faith, more often than not, that child came from a place that was a positive influence for them. The key word is influence. So think about all these clues now. And get into your heart space and ask yourself the question, have I been misguided with my expectations? What I'm trying to tell you this morning is that for your marriage to thrive, you need to learn how to trust God in the midst of a closureless world. It makes me think of a story that happened to a couple in our own church here. You see, in 2015, Gary and Lynn Brennan celebrated their 40th wedding anniversary. Now, that's pretty common. Some people wait till their 50th. Others do their 40th. But for Gary and Lynn, this celebration was quite different than the norm because in this celebration, they were actually getting to know one another all over again. In January of 2014, Gary was rear-ended in the high-speed lane by an inattentive driver. As the driver came up and struck him, he spun out, hit a traffic light. The traffic light fell onto the roof of the car. When the first responders arrived to the scene, he has a giant contusion on his head, and his left hand is degloved. But the worst trauma that happened to Gary's body was invisible. His brain smashed back and forth in his skull and side to side. So the crash erased his memory, including the memory of his marriage. When he arrived in Boston at the medical center, he was wearing his wedding ring. They asked him if he was married. He says, no. His mind has been transported back to 1974. And at this time in Gary's life, he's engaged to a beautiful young girl living on Cape Cod. Well, thankfully, Gary made some significant steps in the, ga- the days to come. He started regaining some of his memories, many of his faculties, but the journey did not take him all the way to his old self. For Gary, much of life was restarting again. He had to relearn basic skills such as crossing the street and using the phone, and how to dry himself off after taking a shower. Even now, Lynn would say that Gary thinks differently. They, they speak of Gary today as being Gary 2.0. Now, this is exemplifying the reality that closure is overrated. The side of eternity, couples just like Gary and Lynn, couples just like you, couples all over the world, or even if you're not married, we all are going to experiencing challenging realities that will be life-altering, and we have to learn to walk with God in the midst of those. So for Gary and Lynn, their marriage is totally different. Gary describes his new normal like this. He says that I have an energy budget every single day, and I have to make careful withdrawals from the energy bank. I can't just operate like I used to. In a Cape Cod Times article in 2015, Lynn talked about the experience of meeting Gary 2.0 and living with him, and she said this, that it is 
lonely because he's not the same person he was. And I'm grieving that person while I'm sitting next to him. It's a challenge. But despite these life-altering circumstances, Gary and Lynn decided to renew their vows on May 31st, 2015. Gary said this, when we said for better or worse in sickness and health, we meant it. And Lynn said this, we would still choose us. We still do. And when I'm talking about this closure thing, what I'm saying is that closure this side of heaven, the closure that we want right now, that closure is overrated. I'm not talking about the closure we get in heaven. A lot of us struggle right now because we want the earth to be heaven. We want the earth to produce for us. But let me let you in on a little secret. If this is heaven, I don't want heaven. I want the heaven that God's created. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon says, He has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has put eternity into man's heart. You know that craving that you're experiencing for fulfillment and satisfaction and purpose? That has been hotwired into you by the living God of the universe. He wants you to crave those things because that is the magnetic pull that brings you to him. In Romans 8:28, the scriptures tell us that we do get full and final closure if we allow God to operate and lead our lives. It says we know that for those who love God, all things will work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. So listen to what the Bible's saying here. We're asking the question, will all end well now, this side of eternity? And the answer to that question is absolutely not. But will all end well if I follow Christ, if I put my faith in Christ, if I trust God with my ultimate arrangements or destiny? And the answer from the Bible is absolutely. Can I ask you to do something with me this morning? Would you bow your heads? Maybe close your eyes, whatever helps you to get into an undistracted state. Don't think about the person to the right or left of you. We live in an age of distraction, so your attention right now to God is a gift to God. Listen, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, if you've not trusted him as your Lord and Savior, you're going to find that this life is vexing. Solomon said it, vanity of vanities, hevel, it's fleeting, it's enigmatic, it's futile. But the Bible says that you can receive all the promises of God, become a child of God, ultimately find closure in God and with God for your biggest problem. And your biggest problem is that you are a sinner separated from your creator. Well, God wasn't content to leave things that way, so he sends his son into the world. His son Jesus lives the life you couldn't live. He dies on the cross, so scriptures say, in your place. He bore your sins for you. And the way to find closure today, if you're ready for it, is by trusting in Christ as your Savior. 
And if you'd like to do that this morning, you can right where you are, pray quietly along with me in your heart this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior in the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment. As best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and your control. Amen. Amen. I'll tell you, if you placed your faith in Christ this morning, that's the beginning of your faith walk with Jesus. And your next step is this. It's to find a good Bible-preaching church so that you can grow in Jesus. If you live in this area, we would love to have you here at Osterville Baptist. If you live somewhere else, there are great churches out there to learn and grow in Christ.